All right, let's try something a little bit different. This is episode 139. We're going to do initial kind of uh, audio articles, but prior to that, it's a, a post-interview kind of follow-up with Alyssa Clark that was going for 100 marathons in 100 days. Get to hear what happened with her, and then she actually contributes an audio article. I wrote an audio audio article, and then we get into um, Sabrina... Virgie's interview, and, and I feel thankful because she hasn't talked to anyone about her epic experience, and so it's a kind of exclusive, just really cool behind-the-scenes uh, chat with her. So let's start with a follow-up with Alyssa. So I'm joined again by a friend of the show, Alyssa Clark. She was going for a hundred marathons in a hundred days. Alyssa, how have you been? It's been an interesting last few days, so not quite the turn of events that I expected. But uh, in for the listeners' background, her episodes like two prior. So if if you don't know her story, feel free to pause us here, go to that one, and then come back. But um, I think you were eleven days out, roughly speaking, ten days out from hitting your goal when we spoke, and then I was a little shocked to see. an update, I think it was yesterday or a few days ago, and I had to just hear what's going on and make sure you're okay. Yeah, definitely. So uh, uh, last week, actually, when we talked, I was feeling a little under the weather, but thought uh, maybe it was just the heat, kind of, you know, when you're really close to the end of something, you can let your mind play the game of, I'm almost done, and then everything kind of feels like it's falling apart. Uh, so I thought, I'll oh, just stay strong a little longer. You're almost there. Um, but I started having some fevers last week. My body really hurt. Um, I lost sense of taste and was just really nauseous. And then um, Friday was coughing a little bit. And then Saturday, I woke up and my chest really hurt. I was coughing a lot. And I just went, uh-oh, this, <laughs> this does not seem like something that's just going to pass. Um, and every marathon just was feeling really hard at that point. And so I started out and I ran about eight miles and just felt awful. And it felt like someone was kind of, um, like an elephant was sitting on my chest. And I just thought, you know, I want to be a runner for the rest of my life. And I know that, uh, with this, uh, and this is kind of a story, but, if it is a virus, it can cause some serious long-term lung damage, um, and that's not where I want this to end. You know, I, I went into this saying, uh, if this ever goes in the direction of putting my health or others' health in safety, then I will stop. And it felt like it was going in that direction. So it felt like that pushing on would be a disservice to why I started um, and the message I was trying to send. So I went to the ER, um, and unfortunately, they were not testing and do not test at that hospital. Um, so they are claiming it's an upper respiratory virus, which sounds an awful lot like something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. This is where I could have fed. <laughs> I mean, it's so, good. So, I mean... First of all, I hope your family's okay, and you know, I, 
your husband and, and everyone else that is probably feeling, uh, you know, worried about your health, but then also they might be having health issues themselves. I hope they're doing okay, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. How it, the hundred marathons in hundred days is just a number, you know, it's just an arbitrary number. It's a nice round number. If we came up with a different counting system, you may have might have already passed that number. I mean, were you more upset Absolutely. about I, feeling like feeling like you had an elephant on your chest, or having this goal for the past however many weeks, and you know, realizing um, that this trumped that and it had to take a back seat? You know, I think it's a lot of things. Uh, All in all, I kind of had to stop myself and say, you know, when I started this, as I've I've said in the previous podcast, I had no idea that I would even try to go this far. And so it wasn't like I said from day one, I'm going to run 100 marathons. It wasn't like that was this number that I had to hit. So I, I thought I was going to stop at 65. I thought I was going to stop at 75. Um, so this is a lot more than I thought. And so I kind of had to stop myself from feeling disappointed because I was really looking forward to hitting that number. You know, there's um, going to be a bit of a celebration. Uh, you know, it's going to be a really fun kind of day and it was going to be ending on my terms. But I think at the end of the day, um, I'm proud of where I ended and I'm proud of making the decision for, um, the health of those around me, you know, now I'm, I'm not going out at all. I'm not interacting with other people, um, because I, I am potentially, you know, putting people at risk and I am getting tested tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely sad because it's sad to have this journey that's taken me, you know, from, you know, through multiple countries, through a big move, through a pandemic. And there's, definitely a sense of loss that I think every person feels when a big chapter closes. Um, but in terms of disappointment, um, I think I have that pretty in perspective. Um, That's awesome to hear. I was blown and, away when I saw the, your decision. Like it was so mature. You you said in the last podcast that you're not very <laughs> mature, but every decision you make with running at least is like, I was I was kind of like proud of you for setting that goal aside and and looking at the bigger picture and realizing time to self isolate and like COVID 19s I don't know there's some weird stigma to it even though it's no one's fault for getting it but um you know I I was happy uh, seeing as oddly. As odd as it sounds, is happy with your decision because you're thinking long term, and like you said, everything seems to be like well in perspective. Thanks, and you know, I have to say, I've been I have been doing a little bit of walking just because, as you know, it's really hard to come down. It almost feels like you have restless leg syndrome, where it's like you can't stop. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I've been walking a little bit, and I've been listening to um, your book again, and there were a number of times where you said I should stop because this isn't beneficial to my overall health, to my overall goals. And it's been really helpful having that positive reinforcement from, 
um, your story. So I will oh, say it's been you. hugely helpful. And I, I really appreciate kind of having that running through my head as well of, uh, no, you, you know, we have to think beyond this. This isn't just a, I'm done and then I'm never going to be a runner again. You know, this is, I want to be a runner for the rest of my life. So I, I'm proud of you. Honestly, I think the whole community <laughs> is like, wow, this person's a breath of fresh air. They're extreme like me, but they actually are looking at things through like a, a refreshing perspective. So I know a hundred marathons in a hundred days would make a nice book title, but it's just arbitrary. It's just, it, you know, 95 and 95 is the same. I mean, Dean Carnassus picked out 50 and 50. I mean, what's, yeah, you know? absolutely. I know I was thinking 95 and 95 doesn't sound too bad. So there's, um, there's a good go reason behind that number. So it's like, it, it's not that you just decided to stop for no reason. So, oh no. And yeah. And the funny thing is, is if you'd asked me in the 80s before I got sick, I was feeling great. I was ready. I was like, this is, you know, it's going to be a, we're going to get there. It's going to be great. And then, yeah, it just went downhill really quickly. And unfortunately, there are other people around me who are um, not feeling too well as well and are having a lot of symptoms. So it's just, you know, it's it's uh, not a great time. And uh the worst thing you can do too is put more burden on the medical system yeah. um, that's unnecessary. So that was another factor of stop before it, it gets really bad. Well, I, I'm impressed. I mean, this started with what, a few weeks in quarantine? Was it overseas yeah. that it started? It was yeah, just going to be a few weeks. So, man, you took it to the extreme like we all do, but. Yeah. <laughs> at least at least you had your wits about you to know when to call it. So I I am truly uh, proud of how you're thinking long term. And it, it definitely shows me like you have huge potential in the sport over the next few years. And what was I going to ask you? I mean, how are you feeling? You said it, it feels like your lungs are being sat on by an elephant. I mean, can you walk us through kind of like how you're feeling and then what they did at the hospital? And I mean, my anytime I see steroids on Instagram within any body of uh, yeah. writing, I'm always like, oh, my gosh, like, where's this going? So, yeah, um, share share with us what's going on there. For sure. So um, throughout the week again it's so hard down here we've had a dust storm it's so hot um that i started having some fevers which i couldn't tell if it was you know the heat or whatever but um then i kind of realized you know maybe it's not just the heat um and then losing sense of taste um so everything just doesn't taste good yeah, that's yeah. yeah. And also that makes you not want to eat. I was also nauseous. Um, so it's really hard to get any calories in, which is very bad when you're trying to run a marathon every day. Um, and then a, uh, kind of a stuffy nose, kind of just body ache, um, which again, it, you know, it's tough when you have mixed signals of, well, of course your body hurts from doing a marathon every day. But this was like a body ache that I hadn't had before. Um, and then a little bit of a cough, but not 
too badly until Saturday where the coughing started getting worse um, and really kind of tightness all around my chest. So in my back muscles, um, through my rib cage, and that just seemed dangerous to be running when you have chest pain. That just, it's a kind of a no, no. Um, so yeah, so I stopped and then my husband took me to the ER and they, you know, they're very careful about saying, is this COVID? Like they won't even say COVID. Um, and so they did a chest x-ray, um, which was okay. That was clear. And when I went in, I didn't have a temperature. And when I left, I had an over a hundred degree temperature. Um, so it spiked even just when I was there. Um, but what basically they can only test, um, if you are from a nursing home or are being hospitalized, um, which is just a very odd situation. Uh, I'm not sure why there's not more, um, push to test because if I am positive and I did not decide to isolate or stay away from others, then I could be walking around spreading it. Um, so it's a major problem right now. I mean, I don't want to dive into that realm, but I don't think they have enough tests right now. Honestly, I think with, with how things are uh, spreading, I don't think Florida really has that capability right now. Maybe I'm totally wrong and I don't want to dive into politics, but um, right. Yeah. It, it was it was just a very odd situation where we were first told, yes, you will get tested and then told, no, you aren't going to. But then their method of treatment was to give me a steroid injection to open up my lungs, um, which they give to young people with COVID. <laughs> so it's uh, okay. it's a very strange thing. It, it's um, I don't think too serious of an injection. Uh, but I do feel better from it. Um, I still am getting some fevers once in a while and I'm nauseous and don't feel great, but my chest doesn't hurt as much as it did. Uh, so don't, it's, don't uh, sound bad. I, I wasn't sure when I was going to call you, if you'd sound, you know, if we'd have to pause like multiple times for you coughing, you sound a little raspy, <clears> but you don't, you, you know, you're, your mood's good. You don't seem like overly sick. Like, are you over the hump of it or? You know, I think I am. Yeah. I think that I honestly ran through a lot of it, which was not great. Um, and so, but I do think that I was going in the wrong direction with the chest pain. And so by stopping and getting the steroid, which is really supposed to act pretty quickly to clear things up and act for the next week, that I think I prevented it from getting worse. Um, so I think that in some ways I may have been inching towards getting better, but I also don't know just because it is such a strain to put your body under a marathon every day. And so yeah, there's no counterfactual. I, you, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Died. Yeah. Mean, honestly, like it's, it's not worth, uh, reflecting too deeply on because you'll just never know i mean yeah and i started doing that game of oh well you know i could probably drag myself through it and i just went well but that's silly like you don't know if this is a because of the medication because you stopped you know any number of things um yeah like you can play that guessing game your whole life or you can make the decision and stand by it 
Um, so, well, I think the whole community is here to support you. I don't want you to feel like there's some kind of odd stigma because I mean, millions of people around the world have gotten COVID, and it's it's not your fault. And just keep us posted on on how you're doing. I want to follow along on Instagram stories and just make sure you're good and. Do you have any last kind of words of wisdom with what you've been through? And um, yeah, I mean, I would just say <laughs> the past ninety-seven <laughs> days or whatever it's been. Ah, uh, it's been wow. I mean, I do feel like a different person than when I started. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would just say that take care of yourself. This isn't a time. I did do something extreme. It was extreme within my range of capabilities though. Um, but what it did start going a way that it shouldn't have, or that I didn't have control, but I had control to stop that. This is not the time to go taking huge risks. This is the time to, uh, take care of yourself and to put others first. So I love it. I mean, you have such great perspective and yeah, maturity level way beyond your years. So Thank you for Thanks. the update. Best of luck with uh, everything over the next few days, few weeks, and really, really hope you know your your family and loved ones stay safe, stay healthy. So, thank you for taking the time for the update. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on, Rob. I appreciate it. A journey begun and ended by COVID by Alyssa Clark. If at any time I start feeling sick or injured, I will stop immediately. This was the caption on my Marathon Number 7 Instagram post. I firmly upheld this promise until Marathon 94, and true to my word, I stopped at 95. 95. Just five marathons short of my end goal of completing 100 marathons in 100 days. Only a few days prior, I was certain I would reach 100. But the virus that began this journey was the virus that would end it. My daily marathons would be ended by a now-confirmed case of COVID. I share this information with a conflicted heart. I am relieved to have the results and to know my husband and I have escaped the virus with mild cases compared to others. We were tired, lacking appetite, had slight fevers, and for me, some chest pain and mild coughing. But overall, we have both had far worse illnesses. We are the lucky ones. It took us a couple days to realize our symptoms were not just the result of heavy training in a new environment. We were only a couple weeks off an international move, my husband starting a new career in the Navy, my marathon streak, and a change to northern Florida, notorious for 100-plus degree weather and 100% humidity. As many athletes know, particularly those challenging their mental and physical capacity, it can be difficult to recognize a bad day from a potentially serious issue. Most of the time, we have trained ourselves to ignore the pain and rationalize ourselves onto the next mile. Throughout the marathons, I've had strong and weak days, but every time I would bounce back, having a streak where I felt stronger than ever. This time, though, it was different. I dragged myself out of bed on day 95, wishing the marathon away before it began, something I never do. I love running as much as breathing, and rarely wish I was at home sleeping or laying down, rather than being outside doing what I love. 
But on day 95, all I wanted to do was stop. I pulled myself through, having moments where I believed I was okay, my legs feeling stiff, but steady. When I returned home, I realized I had only consumed one Gatorade for the entirety of the marathon. I could barely get myself into the shower before immediately falling asleep, having consumed no replacement calories. Only after an hour and a half nap could I bring myself to try to eat. Again, as many ultra runners and long distance runners know, it isn't uncommon to be nauseous and tired right after a big run. I chalked it up to my body telling me it was just about at its end point. No more extensions past 100 marathons, Alyssa. I need a break. I assumed it was similar to how the last 10 kilometer of a 100 mile race can feel like it's marathons away from the end, even though it is a distance we know so well. I believed I could finally see the finishing line, and I was struggling to stay focused. I was incorrect. My chest doesn't feel good, and I've started coughing pretty frequently, I told Cody, as I stood putting on my running clothes. You should stop then, he said. You have nothing to prove. He was right. I had never set out on this journey to run 100 marathons in 100 days. I was merely seeing how far I could go on a split-second decision to try to pass the time of lockdown in Italy. I originally thought I would run about 15 marathons, but here I was, 95 in and feeling like I had to reach 100. There were news stations planning to be at 100, friends and local running groups planning to cheer me in social distancing style, bottles of champagne purchased to be popped as I reached the final 26.2. But it wasn't meant to be. I knew my chest wasn't hurting from normal pain. It was hurting from something beyond my control. I knew I was moving in the direction of hurting myself, my future running career, and possibly putting others in danger. I knew I needed to be tested and quarantine myself from others. I knew eight miles into day 96 that my marathons were over. And I stopped. What began quietly on an old treadmill in my home ended with my last two miles run next to the man who has been with me every step of the way. I stopped my watch at 26.23 outside our home on day 95, and we walked inside. No fanfare, no special event. It was just the two of us, like we'd been from the start. In many ways, it was the right ending. The marathon idea came as a response to COVID, to inspire others to keep putting one step in front of the other and to pursue goals in a safe and careful manner. COVID ended my marathon streak, but it was also the reason why it began. Cody and I are lucky. COVID let us off easy, and we are deeply grateful. My heart goes out to the many wonderful and undeserving people who have suffered from this virus, and I pray we will have a vaccine soon. The biggest lesson I can take away from this experience is to listen. As Rob said to me, if you had attempted the last five marathons, you may not be here right now to tell the story. Be safe, my friends. Listen to your body listening. Understanding how you think can improve how you run and race. By Rob Steger. When the great Greek philosopher Thales of Miletus was asked what he thought was the most difficult part of life, he replied, to know thyself. As ultra runners, 
We are drawn to difficulty. We celebrate challenges. Getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is one of the hallmarks of our sport. Running has helped many of us better understand ourselves. Self-exploration is commonplace on the trails. Over a relatively short period of time as a runner, one of the most important lessons I have learned so far is how to listen to my body. Most of us are actually really good at this. Think about looking over a large spread of an aid station and having the urge for watermelon or pickles. We are listening, whether we know it or not. Our physical body is conveying highly complex needs and converting it into simple messages. As Anime Flynn sometimes jubilantly yells, running into an aid station, Give me all your pickles and coke! For most of us, listening to our bodies is limited to our physical body, our bones, muscles, and tendons. Rarely do we include our brain, because frankly, that is what we're using to listen. This has been the turning point for my own running over the past year. It came from a deep level of self-acceptance and becoming more self-aware. Through introspection, while running, and outside of running, I began to make notes of my tendencies. Something as simple as when I get lost on the trail or miss a turn, I get upset and my natural reaction is to run faster. It takes some experience of getting lost to begin to understand your reactionary tendencies and to self-correct yourself the next time you get lost. But this is only one basic illustration of how some megacognition work can actually make you a better runner and improve your races. This is where the wisdom of tallies rings true and things can become uncomfortable. Most of us think differently and see the world differently, even from a similar vantage point of the trails. We all have our own strengths and weaknesses with a wide range of life experiences. The growth I have experienced has come from the acceptance of my weaknesses. This acceptance has helped me explore the area of metacognition as an area worthy of tough reflection and training. Empirically, by observing my own thoughts while running, I've been able to pick up on trends and patterns. These findings were jotted down following each training run or race. It is an additional column of notes beyond just the miles, time, and pace that most of us record. It takes more work to recall and analyze, but I haven't stopped at my own observations, and you shouldn't either. Ask for feedback from friends, coaches, and crew and pacers. Ask them the hard questions, the uncomfortable ones, like your emotional state during low spots. Compare these answers to your own internal dialogue at those moments. This is all getting to the root of listening to your body, listening. By better understanding how you think, you can better understand what messages are being sent in the heat of the race. A lot of those messages we receive are normal and seem hard-coded in our genetics. Just like you can magically reach for pickles when you're dehydrated, we seem programmed to feel certain ways during a race. Listen closely, quiet your mind, and take in deep level input your brain is receiving. Then listen closely to how you react to those inputs. How does it make you feel? How does it change your pace, your cadence, and normal running behavior? The next level training that you can do to improve your next race or long run is to have predetermined responses to these messages. 
short circuit those messages before they end your race. Low points for me always feel like they're never ending. Any thought of time within a low, I've trained myself to respond with, this is a low point and is only temporary. I'll get through this and feel better soon. Controlling your thoughts and emotions is hard. And sometimes all it takes is a few pre-programmed responses to help you get back to a good place. By thinking more about how you were thinking while you were running, some even deeper findings can be made. Ask yourself some of the basics. How do I think? How do I analyze information? What are my communication strengths and weaknesses? How do I learn? What are my emotional tendencies at different parts of the race? What was I thinking during my good runs versus my poor ones? Don't stop there. Go back and ask friends and family some of the same questions about yourself. These questions can make us feel vulnerable and maybe even uncomfortable. But by better understanding yourself, you will have the information about how you think to think about. Have a game plan for the mental side of your next race. Work with your crew and let them know your pre-programmed responses to some of your own emotional responses. Think about how your crew and pacers think too, so you can operate smoothly during race day. With some work, it can bear fruit if sincere efforts are made to better understand how you think. Don't be afraid to explore how you learn best. Ask others for their opinion too. Coaches can give a healthy outside perspective. You might actually see improvement come race day if you listen closely enough. Listening your body is important and many times vital within ultra running, but don't stop at only listening to those messages about your physical running body. Listen to how you are listening. limitations and tap into our internal fire the possibilities are endless i'll tell you about it when it happened in the race but to be honest with you it happened even before the race it happened in the training a great cause oh thank you i respect that man so you keep doing what you do it man keep inspiring jam jam jamil curry here from air viper running and welcome to the training for ultra podcast for all you kids out there stay safe and stay strong Hi, this is Alex Nichols. Uh, welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? Decided if I could, you know, finish a 50 miler, I could probably run across the country. 100 miles is not that far. Hey, this is Carl Meltzer, the Speed Goat, and I want to welcome everybody to the Training for Ultra podcast.
Welcome to episode 139 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name is Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra, and we have Sabrina Virgi on this episode. She's from the UK. She's just an all-around badass athlete. And on the show, I'm going to have Alyssa Clark as co-host, and I, I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. It's a sort of behind-the-scenes interview on something that she hasn't really talked about. I think she did one interview with Runner's World, and I haven't heard too much more about it, so really excited to share that with you. Big thank you to Hammer Nutrition. If you haven't tried them out, feel free to use my referral code, promo code, 252888 to save 15% off your first order. I just tried out some Exoskin socks. They sent me some fresh ones. Oh my gosh. Uh, definitely check out Exoskin. Check out the show notes for a discount code. And I just, I forgot what a fresh pair of Exoskins feels like. I mean, I've had some since Moab 240 of 2018 that I still wear but nothing like getting a fresh pair. Uh, so big thanks to Croy for sending those out, but they got a bunch of different color options now. And I got some, it, it's weird to get excited about white socks because I haven't worn white running socks, I think basically ever, but check them out. They have just high quality all around gear. Big thank you to Kogala. I've gotten a lot of requests on, what light do I recommend during just big efforts, 24 hours, 48 hours, multi-day type efforts? And Kogala is what I personally favor. I mean, it's kind of earth shattering when you put a Kogala light on a waist belt and you can move your head around during the nighttime. But the settings of that light can get so bright that it's kind of game changing. It, it changes your mental attitude at night a lot of times and really helps you see on technical terrain. Can't recommend them enough. I'm thankful they're a sponsor for sure, but I would, it's hard to not use a Kogal light after you use that one, honestly. Big thank you to Destination Trail. They got a ton of races, virtual races. Um, listeners should definitely check out if you get a chance. Got those trademark belt buckles at stake. I think they have one of the longest virtual race is available. So I know there's been a lot of races canceled this year, but Destination Trail is continuing to put on some really cool virtual races. So check them out. Last but not least, Patreon supporters. Giant thank you to Brian Sands. He is now um, one of the, the major sponsors within Patreon. Just huge, huge supporter. Richard Murray too. Both of those guys are just crushing it. I really, really appreciate them. And then still within this big shout out list, David, Brian, Meg, Landon, Pat, Joseph, Ray, Todd, and Matthew, you guys are in the shout out tier. I really, really appreciate you guys. And hopefully we can have you all on again, maybe have another Patreon kind of group chat here coming up soon. But Regardless, if you're donating a hundred dollars a month or a dollar a month, I mean, it's all going towards inspiring content for you guys. So I really, really appreciate you making this all possible and all work. Enjoy episode 139. 
I'm joined here by Sabrina Virgie. She is an excellent UK-based ultra runner. Really excited to hear more about her background and what she's done recently, what she has in store in the future here. And then I'm also joined by new co-host Alyssa Clark. You know her from trying for the uh, the hundred marathons in hundred days. So honored to have both you guys on. Thanks for having us, Rob. Yeah, nice to be here. <laughs> I mean, Sabrina, it's it's weird because before we started, I mean, I was joking that, you know, you're doing amazing things overseas in the UK. And here in the US, we don't hear that much about your guys' races. I mean, we definitely are learning more and more as we hear about these epic, like long, some are multi-day races but it sounds like kind of the same thing in reverse, too. You guys don't hear too much about U.S. ultra running. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I was just thinking um, when you said that, I was wondering if there is something that's the equivalent of um, of the Wainwrights Challenge. Or actually, I mean, what's really popular at the, uh, over here is the Bob Graham round. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you guys have heard of that. Uh, and everyone is doing it at the moment. It's just it's quite crazy. Um, so that would be a challenge that people try to do in under 24 hours. And, um, we just had Beth Pascal, um, really annihilate another very good female record and she's done it in 14 hours and 34 minutes. So it's a lot below 24 hours. Um, and that's, what's really exciting at the moment. I wondered if there's something like that in, in the U S that you guys have. Rob, I would say uh, the Rim to Rim at the Grand Canyon is definitely one of the FKTs that's very popular and uh, very prestigious uh, to get. And maybe Tahoe Rim Trail is pretty yeah. popular as no, well. No, I, I, yeah. I thought of both both of those two. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to mind. And we'll see what Courtney does here uh, over the next few weeks and the Colorado trail might become popular all of a sudden. So, but yeah, we don't have too many of those. We do have a lot of the organized events, but, yeah. um, it seems really popular at the moment because we can't race, um, cause we can't have gatherings. Um, it's great to have a challenge that you can start at any time or day where you feel fit and ready for it. And, you know, it's not a race and you don't have to pay to enter or anything and you just do it. And and we have trackers. So you just hire a tracker so people can watch you while you're doing it. It's, it's great, um, especially with no races at the moment. Yeah, it's a time of create your own adventure. Um, so I have, I have a quick question. How did you decide to go from the rounds, which is a 24 hour uh, kind of time frame uh to something like the Wan rights which or wayne rights uh, which is over six days what kind of encouraged you to to go in that direction and to go that much further yeah so it's a it's a different thing altogether to be honest um but my strengths are definitely go longer uh you know like the dragon's back five days um 24 hours is probably too short. <laughs> I, 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 my, my Bob Graham time would be pretty slow. I, you know, Beth's just done it 14.34. I'd be happy with 18 hours if I was doing that. Um, but the the attraction was um, the adventure. The starting from one place and just 
going all the way around and doing every single Wainwright. So a Wainwright is is basically this uh, the guy Wainwright. He wrote a load of books and he actually made some beautiful illustrations of the mountains and he just walked them. He wasn't really a runner as such, um, but he talked about his the summits that you know he appreciated and i mean it's most of the obvious ones there are a few that are left out but basically it's like getting going to every summit in the lake district of you know of significance and there's 214 of them so it was just a really cool challenge to just go up every single one um and other people do this as a walking thing you know over years just a bag of summits um as a sort of you know, to do before I die list, you know, let's go to every Wainwright. And I'm not very organized like that. I didn't even know if I'd been up all of them before I did this. But I thought, well, you know, not very logical. I didn't take them off. But I thought, well, once I've gone around all of them in one go, now I know I've got them all. <laughs> how much How much gain was involved there? And, and what was the distance? Uh, the distance for mine was 530 kilometers or thereabouts. And the height gain, it's a lot. <laughs> Um, I think someone said, was it three or four Everests? So something like 34,000 meters, I think. I so, mean, we'd have to wow. check. So you're, you're talking 330 miles in over 100,000 feet of yeah. gain. Wow. Yeah. And, and so I will move up and down. <laughs> I will also caveat this with the UK's ideas of trails are much different than the U.S.'s ideas of trails. You guys are a little bit more rugged than we are. Yeah. So this in particular, uh, there weren't always trails because you wanted to go from, you know, a random summit to another one because it was closest or least height drop. And that was not the classic way to go up that, that particular mm -hmm. mountain. So sometimes you'd be trudging a trail that no one had been on ever. Um, just, you know, to make the route the most efficient way possible. So some of it had trails, but a lot of it was just fell. So we're really lucky here. We can just roam all over the area that's called open access. So there are lines on a map where we're allowed to just go off path and things. So you can just make your own route however you want. But sometimes that's pretty rough. So you know, there's bog or a lot of bracken or really high grass. Um, but it's more efficient to stick to the trails where you can. But just some of them, it didn't make sense. You know, you'd be going five or six kilometers out your way to stay on the trail, whereas you could just go directly and, and just suck up the rough stuff for a bit. <laughs> so there's like two different kinds of ultra runners. There's one that is OCD and, and checking every box and planning every detail. And then there's like this real abstract, and maybe this is just people in general. They kind of make it up on the fly. And I mean, which, which category do you think you fall in? Had you pre-planned any of this route or were you just kind of on the fly making decisions around bogs and, and all kinds of stuff? Oh, I see. Okay. So I, uh, it's a bit of both really. So, um, there's a bit of history on this round. I did not um, invent this this uh, challenge. Um, you know, it's, it's been around for a long time that people want to collect Wainwrights. And actually, um, there's been some predecessors. Um, so I think it's thought that I was the fifth person to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so the second person to do it was Joss Naylor, who did it in seven days-ish, I think. Um, and then it was really Steve Birkinshaw who spent a long time 
putting pen to paper and mapping it out. And he came up with this route um, that he did. Um, and then last year, Paul Tierney came along and he knew he could be quicker than Steve. So he literally just took Steve's route and his plan was just to do it faster than Steve. So he did the exact same route. Now, I took the route, and, and I'm not somebody who can just follow somebody else's route. I have to check the route, check it's um, the most efficient way to go or it's the way I want to go. Mm -hmm. So I did spend a few months, um, perhaps even a year, wrecking bits of it. Um, and by, by the time I did the challenge, I had covered at least 95% of the route. Um, oh, wow. that, yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it was really good training. Um, but I changed a few bits of Steve's route because I thought it was a, some places a better idea. And then there was one part I had to change because, you know, with this whole coronavirus, we couldn't go through people's farms, you know, just wasn't good to traipse through someone's farm. So I had to do a big reroute on that, which is why my route was longer. Um, and then on the day we had, well, the three days preceding my challenge, we had so much rainfall um, there was a river that there was no way I was going to get across it. So I had to do quite a large diversion around a road um, to go to a bridge uh, to, to get there. So there were a mixture of that. You know, some of it I had really pre-planned. And then just before I had to change some things where, you know, the weather or ground conditions just meant that you couldn't um, go the way I had planned. Um, and that was also the case with me going later in the year. I had wanted to go in May where the ground conditions are better, they're drier, and there's less bracken, you know, fern. So mm -hmm. in July, this fern is like all, all the way up to my waist, so it's not ideal. So if you can go around it, it's better. But in May, it's it's low enough just to, you know, trounce over it. So a bit of both, pre-planning, and then you also have to adjust things on the day. So where were you mentally day of when you're you're starting this? I mean... Have you done enough of these that you're comfortable and you just have your routine or are you nervous and having trouble sleeping beforehand or just tell me how kind of night before and morning of going after this giant, uh, you know, task. So I guess I spent a long time uh, wanting to do this. Um, I'd first decided I wanted to do this six years ago and then, you know, I'd been doing a lot of racing and you need to clear your race calendar because obviously it's going to take you out for some time afterwards. Um, so by the time it got around to it, I was just desperate to get on with it. Um, I was excited, but I was generally calm because yeah, I know I'm completely capable of doing it. Um, the only thing I, the most the thing I was most worried about was we have this um, track and trace system. And I was like, God, if, if one of my support team get called up and say that they need to self-isolate and then they've been in contact with other support team members, it could take the entire support team out, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, completely beyond, you know, factors beyond your control um, or, you know, if you if you injure yourself properly, you know, if you have a real like, I don't know, you fall and, and break a leg or something you really can't finish because I know I'm pretty tough and I can just finish with, you know, little injuries and things. But, you know, if you actually break something. So those are the things I worry about. But I was really surprised. So I decided to start the challenge at 3 a.m. And I decided to go to bed at 8 o'clock the night before. And I, I just fell asleep. 
I just had the best night's sleep. And I couldn't believe it because that's not normally the case, but I was ready for it. So, so yeah. And then when I got up at, I got up at two and people always laugh at me. Well, my supporters laugh at me because, you know, I got up at two and I had to then get changed and drive to Keswick um, and get to the start for three. And so I'm walking up to Moot Hall, which is where we start these things from. Um, and, you know, I'm there at like two minutes to three and people are just like, uh, you're cutting it a little fine. I'm like, well, I wanted more sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so on the sleep aspect, how much did you sleep? Because this was over six days. Yeah. So how, what was your sleeping strategy? Because that's always such an important thing when you're doing these kind of longer distance, but there's a time constraint you're trying to hit. Yeah. So um, when, as I said, when Paul decided he wanted to break Steve's record. He knew he could just run faster. And I looked at the boys' timetable and I thought, crikey, they've, they've slept a lot. They've hung around a lot. They've <laughs> laughed. We can, we can do without all that. You know, I'm an adventure racer. I know how to do the sleep deprivation. I know how to do the no faffing and just get on with transition. And I thought, mm, I could, you know, I can't run as fast as these guys, but I can, I can do something here with their sleeping and faff time. So I, I wrote my own schedule. I looked at this, the, because I'd done the reccees, I knew what timing I could do for the splits. I knew I would probably get a bit slower as, you know, the days went on. Um, and I knew what sleep I could do, you know, as little sleep as I could do with. And when I wrote my schedule, um, so uh, Paul's time was six days and seven hours, I think, something like that. And I kept looking at my schedule and it kept coming out with six days dead. Didn't matter what I did to that schedule. It was six days dead. I was like, I must have done something wrong here with this spreadsheet. But um, kept coming out with six days. I was like, this this challenge can be done in six days, I decided. And I had put in no sleep for the first night. Mm -hmm. Then conveniently, my house is right on the route. So I slept at my house. So the second night, my first night of sleep. Um, and I slept there for an hour and a half. And then the third night, I had a probably... I scheduled an hour and a half. I'm not sure I took all of that. I think I might have only had an hour. Um, and then the fourth night, about the same, an hour and a half. Um, and then I think I actually split the fifth night because it wasn't convenient to sleep anywhere properly um, because it was going to be in the middle of the leg. So I sort of put a half hour here and there to make up an hour and a half over that night. Um, and that's kind of what I did. And... I was fine with the sleep deprivation. There was no problem with that, but I was right on the line um, of what I could manage with or so without. How many hours in were you before you took that first rest? Um, I'm trying to. Is it like so 36 four, hours or? 49. Oh, wow. 50 hours. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. and so just after you do your first summit, I mean, are you just trying to get in a rhythm or like, how's, how are things unfolding? Did you have a feeling it was going to be a good attempt or, I mean, were your legs feeling dead? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I had a good feeling. I set off. I felt good. Um, I kept going. I still felt good. I was quite surprised. I was just like, going out to have a good time and and take each step as it came and for me you know 
I didn't put any pressure on myself. I wanted it. I really wanted to. I really wanted to do it in six days because I knew I could. Um, and um, it was just really exciting because you have, you know, what we call, we call them pacers or supporters. You have a couple of people, or I had a couple of people come on each leg with me, um, you know, and they would carry a rucksack with food and water in and just hand it to me when I needed it. And um, somebody would just be making sure we were going the right way. Um, you know, and all I had to really do was just keep moving. Um, and yeah, and it was just, it just was going really well. I mean, the, the main thing against me was, yeah, the, the bracken and the sheer amount of volume of water in, on the fells, making it a bit harder to, to move quickly. So that was a bit impeding. Um, and the weather should have been nicer, <laughs> but yeah. it really wasn't. Um, every night it rained a lot and yeah, I got a little bit fed up of being wet and cold. So there were the main things just overnight it, yeah. And it's quite difficult when you've got a head torch on and it's dark and you get that kind of rain where it's, you know, it's bouncing off the light on your head torch Mm -hmm. and that really makes you feel a little bit more fatigued than you would. It's hard to concentrate on what you're doing when there's just light bouncing back at you. So yeah, I could have done without all that. Um, but yeah, you probably know I'm going to try again in next May because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got to get it under six days. I've got to do it. <laughs> so I fully go ahead, Rob. No, I was just going to ask, like, were you, I, I just want to hear how the first few days went. I mean, did you take any big spills? I mean, were things going as planned? I mean, I know the weather was not cooperating and, mental fatigue for me after 36 hours i'm like oh i'm in desperate need of a nap of some sort so to go that far i mean you're kind of pushing yourself not only physically but then mentally like want to hear about hallucinations they have to be there well it's funny you say that because i've done a lot of adventure racing and yeah i've had my fair share of hallucinations um and this particular time, I didn't have a single hallucination. What? I don't know why. Yeah, I don't That's know why. That's a good race. Know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if my brain now knows how to conquer them. Um, I, I think that yeah. might be what it is. Because every time I race now, I have fewer and fewer of them. Um, it's like my brain has already worked out that, you know, because it's normally animals and things like that. Your brain tries to make you see in people that are not there. Um, so the main problem that I was having was, um, I did push it a little bit. So I think some of my naps could have come an hour or two earlier. Um, so just on the way into that, um, where I slept at my house, you know, 49 hours in, I probably could have done with sleeping a couple of hours earlier. So the stop before, but it was just because it was convenient to go at my house that I pushed it that far, really. Um, but, yeah, on the way into that, I, I was talking a bit gibberish. I knew I was. Um, I was <laughs> I was being a bit silly, really. I was just complaining to um, my support. You know, I was like, why are we going uphill? You know, my house is downhill from here. <laughs> I was like, you know, then we would be going up to the last summit. And I'd be like, why are we going downhill? We've got to go uphill to the summit. And, and, and poor Neil was just going, yeah, but we there are a few little lump saps. You know, you're going to just do a little down and then we're going up. <laughs> I was just being a bit silly and then further in it got a bit more so I think it was my fifth night um and I knew I needed to sleep and and I just 
I just remember sort of saying to the guys, I'm like, I can't see. I'm like, I just, I can't see. Can you just hang on a second? Because I can't see where I'm going. I can't see. Is my head torch working? I can't see. Why can't I see? And I was like, oh, my eyelids are in the way. (laughs) (laughs) Now I know the problem. And, and I'm being kind of logical, but silly. And I'm like, right, okay, my eyelids are right. Right, we need a plan. We need a plan to get rid of my eyelids. They are just ruining this. Can't see. How about we peel them off? Will they peel off? <laughs> just, I can't believe I'm saying. This. And then I was like, let's cut them off because they're really not very useful right now because they're just, keep, they're just getting in the way. Um, and I can't believe they let me carry on like that because. And then the next thing I was going on about paintings and fences green, and then I just said to them, I said, do you know what? Let's let's shove me in the bobby for five minutes and let me sleep for five minutes so that I can be a bit more useful again. Because while I'm talking about all this not being able to see, of course, I'm moving very slowly because obviously I can't see the starters. And yeah. over. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, then I got in the bobby and slept uh, just five minutes. I told them to wake me up after five minutes. Um, to be honest, it could have been hours. They might have done that, but I think they probably wouldn't. They probably would have got cold standing around for longer than five minutes so i assume and i trust that they let me only for five minutes like i asked <laughs> um and then we got going again and, and it would refresh me you know it would sort out the eyelids anyway um to actually <laughs> see where i was going um so it was really like that it would be like i'm totally awake um and then i'm i'm totally not okay uh, quite quickly um and they they were really amused um when i got to there's a pub called the pheasant inn which is on this uh final day i think or no maybe the fifth day um anyway it's really sunny it was during the day and they they had a chair there waiting for me to just to sit down change so someone's changing my shoes and socks and i was i literally sat in that chair and i fell asleep straight away and apparently there's like loads of noise you know millions of people around i'm just i'm just zonked out in this chair um and i have my five minutes and then i wake up and then i'm off again (laughs) It's like my two-year-old can <laughs> yeah. sleep through if a cannon went off in the background. I swear he could sleep through it. But well, that's it. I think if you're that tired, <laughs> it's sufficient because you're just out like a light. Um, but I, each time I fell asleep, I had no problem with getting up and carrying on again. I was quite happy to. Um, yeah. That, oh, that's that, amazing. Yeah. So h- how do you make – I mean, clearly you'd had this adventure planned for – six years how do you find a balance between racing and doing adventures because you've certainly had your fair share of both and are very successful at both um how do you kind of i mean this year is very different because you can kind of only do adventures but uh how does that play out for you in planning your schedule long term yeah um i don't think i really plan stuff i'll be honest so um i see a race i want to do it i enter it um i see a challenge i want to do okay i've got more control over that so i will put that in at the time of year that i want to do it um this one was top priority for me for this year um and i really wanted to do it in may and then um i got offered a place to do the cape wrath ultra and i had been so desperate to do that race for so long I and it's quite an expensive race so to get to do it and not have to pay I was like I just I can't say no to this and I was in a real dilemma because I wanted to do uh, the Wainwrights in May 
So the Cape Wrath Ultra was supposed to be something like the 24th of May for Mm -hmm. seven days or eight days. Um, And so I said to myself, okay, so if I do this eight days of ultra racing, how long do I need to recover for the Wainwright? So I decided I needed three weeks. So (laughs) I set the date for the Wainwrights as the 19th of June. Is that recovery or taper? I'm, yeah, both. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's efficient. I do that. Recovering and tapering together, they go very well. <laughs> um, and when I decided the Cape Wrath would be a really good training, actually, for the Wainwrights, you know, doing 40 to 60 or 70 kilometers a day was probably what exactly what my training should be for this sort of challenge. Um, so I thought, you know, it might not be a bad idea, but, but basically it was because I, ha- I had to do both. You know, <laughs> I wasn't going to choose. Um, and then, of course, coronavirus came along and uh, the Cape Wrath was cancelled. Um, mm-hmm. But I have the same dilemma next year because, well, the Cape Wrath was postponed next year. So I have an entry for Cape Wrath next year, but I know I've got to do the Wainwrights in May. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm going to try and do both. <laughs> nice. So... I'm, I'm- Three weeks on right now from Wainwrights, and I'm running back at the same pace as I was before the Wainwrights. Impressive. So I'm okay. Now, the knee injury I had hasn't recovered, so I can't run downhill. <laughs> but apart from that, I'm good. <laughs> I mean, tell me more about that. When Did that happen during the round, and mm. or is it just – was it building up into it, or – so I've never had any knee issues before. I've never had this problem before. Wasn't expecting it. I was thinking maybe Achilles issues because that's the sort of area that's a bit twingy. Had no problems with my Achilles. But this thing, and I couldn't, I didn't, couldn't figure out when I had done this or when it had started to happen until about maybe 10 days after I finished. Um, and I was really thinking about when did this knee flare up? Because it was quite spectacular. This knee was massive. Um, and I call it the knee, but I mean, it was, a, it was a, all around the sort of quad, you know, I mean, it was, it was so fat, um, this, this leg just couldn't bend. It was just basically useless. And because there was so much swelling, no one could figure out where or what I had done because it's just swollen, you know. Um, and, you know, we weren't going to get swelling down while I was still uh, running. There was just no way. Um, but once everything settled, um, basically, um, I think I'd really aggravated some muscles and a bursa. So there was a bit of bursitis. Um, so I realized when I had done it, it was while um, contouring. Uh, there's a long contour section. I must have been doing maybe 20 or 30 minutes of going across the hillside with my right leg higher than my mm-hmm. and it was about four days in so I guess I'd already done a lot on the legs and and I remember it straining in the adductor and it just being a bit painful and I'd stopped to try and stretch it but I was also telling myself off to stop faffing and get on with it and now I'm like maybe a bit of hindsight I should have sorted it out um and then it just gradually flared and flared and the swelling just just went mental um, but you know, you get all this fluid retention and you swell everywhere anyway. Um, so it's just really hard to see what you've done and, and it just hurts basically. <laughs> and then you have a leg that's a bit 
you know, if you can't bend it, you can't use it. So that was basically the, the killer. And unfortunately, I knew at that point that, that uh, my six days wasn't going to happen, but maybe I could just crawl it round uh, to finish what I was trying to do. <laughs> wow. So you just kind of gutted it out and, and dealt with the pain and kept going. Yeah, yeah. And there was a, a I mean, it, it really was, um, yeah, hard. There was um, a descent I had to do, which was so steep and rocky. And the only way I was getting down that was backwards because it was so steep. Um, I just couldn't lift the leg enough to get it over the, the rocks. So I had to go backwards and I um, I hung on to a couple of uh, my support team to guide me where I was going so I didn't go off the edge. But, um, yeah, it's, it's bad as well because you get into this mental state where you don't care if you fall off and, you know, have a tumble. You just want to get down this thing. Uh, and backwards was the only way. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was really hard doing the descents. Um, and then, weirdly, you're, like, going uphill, charging uphill because that's so much more comfortable and great um but then you're getting to the top of another summit and then just looking down thinking oh dear god why did i come up here oh god how am i going to get down and i would just i just mix it up you know if it was grass um and steep i'll stick my waterproof trousers on and sit on my bum and just slide down um you know i was doing all sorts of things to get down these descents in the end it was really ridiculous but you know I was with a great bunch of people and, you know, we were just laughing. I mean, we, it was just hilarious because, you know, what sort of state is this, is this uh, sort of normally quite capable runner and <laughs> very disabled, <laughs> this disabled person. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking each time I climbed up a hill, I'm just thinking no one in their right mind would be going up another hill with this injury. You'd just be glad to get down. But I just had to, I just had to finish this thing. Um, and... I just, yeah, and and that was it. I just had to finish it. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I have so many questions, but I will just select one or two here. Um, have you ever DNF'd a race? Have you ever yeah. given yeah. up on one? Yeah. Okay. Just checking, because that that's... That, oh, but not often. And it, this one is, uh, it'll stay with me forever. It was the Lakeland 100. And the thing is, though, to be fair, um, I knew I either had to DNS, I not start, or DNF. They were the only two choices. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I couldn't not start a race because all my friends were there. It's like such a fun, awesome race. Um, and I wasn't going to miss out on the fun. So I, I did crawl myself. Well, it was really weird because I was still first lady 60 miles in, but I my hamstrings just locked down. They were like, you have done too much racing and that's it. Kaput, you're out, not doing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't even have a choice because it was like, it's like my body just, it was just, it was, it was just, you know, I didn't have that choice physically. Um, yeah, I couldn't move. So that was, that was that. But um, I had done, this is when you know you've done too much. I knew I'd done too much. I'd done, I'd done, what had I done? Um, the Dragon's Back. Yeah, so Alyssa, the year, that was, yeah, we did The Dragon's Back. And then two weeks later, I did this thing called the Ramsey Round, which is like the Bob Graham, but in Scotland. So that took me 26 hours. And then a week after that, I did a 35-mile ultra. 
And then the week after that, I did the spine, the summer spine. So that's like, I don't know, 300 miles, 270 miles it is. And then um, two weeks after I finished that, I did a mountain marathon with my husband. And then two weeks after that was the Lakeland 100. That's it? I, <laughs> that's so so I just remember following you from your finish at Dragons going, wait, she's still going? And then maybe we can jump to this. You not only did the spine fusion, you won it outright. Yeah. So <laughs> you, I, I can't, I, I was blown away following you that summer of what you were taking on. That was unbelievable. Um, so how did you feel going into the spine for that after all of those races? Did you feel really fit and ready or were you kind of realizing that the fatigue had accumulated? Yeah, I was realizing I was an idiot. So, um, the after the dragon's back, I was in such calorie deficit. I'd lost so much weight because that last day, um, you know, I had really bad gut issues and, uh, you know, just everything was coming out and nothing was going in, you know, one of those. And um, I finished the dragon's back very depleted. And I was thinking, I have to eat double what I normally eat now to put my, because I'm going to be going into another race. So I have to, I have to eat double calories. So that's what I was doing for a whole month. I was eating double um, what I would normally eat. Um, and it's really hard, actually. I love eating and I'm good at it. But actually for me, even for me, that was quite hard to eat double what you normally eat for a whole month. And I, I remember just telling him, I have to do it because, you know, during the spine, I'm not going to be able to eat, you know, enough to replace what I'm using. So I can't also be replenishing, you know, from the dragon's back still. And then, of course, I did all those extra things as well to really not help myself. So when I was stood there on the start line for the spine, I sort of said to myself, OK, body, come on, one more time. One more time, little body. <laughs> got to do it. <laughs> We're going to be fine. And then I promise I'll let you rest, which, of course, I didn't. <laughs> and um, and I just thought it's okay. I just have to eat enough. This is all going to be fine as long as I just eat lots and lots on the way around. So, you know, sacrifice a bit of time eating, you know, for moving. This is the way to do it. So I did that. I ate really, really well on the spine, and it helps because they, they their meals are absolutely amazing. Um, you go into a, a, a support point and they've got a menu there. They're like, do you want lasagna? You know, do you want a soup? Do you want risotto? Do you want to fry some eggs? You know, they're amazing. You can basically, you know, they really look after you. So I could eat really well. Um, but I do remember being on the start and starting and feeling like my legs had, uh, you know, they were not rested. You know, you're running on probably like, it feels like you've already done a hundred miles, but what I would say about that is it probably meant I was nicely um, tempered not to go too hard off the start. I um, I was very steady in my, I think, in my pacing. So maybe it helps. So I, I love all of that. Do you, do you have a special diet or do you eat whatever, whatever well, your body's craving? I eat anything, everything. I eat a lot of cake. That would probably be... <laughs> My downside to being an athlete is just that food comes first, you know, and, and probably that's my motivation for running. So it's like I want to eat that cake, so then I have to do some running, or I want to eat some more cake after that piece, so then I've got to go for another run so that I don't end up fat. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly how my brain works. <laughs> and 
for you, do you, does your body go through cycles so that you are feeling like total crap for back of, for a lack of a better word at mile 150 and then your body's able to kind of go through that low cycle and like tell me how your body cycles through things during these super long incredibly difficult races um during these long things i think i'm pretty generally pretty happy i'm pretty good i'm pretty comfortable i i keep it comfortable i think that is probably the key i think if you push yourself at that point you're pushing yourself too hard where you're out of your comfort zone you kind of screw it up um because you know last thing you want is lactic acid to deal with you know and burn um and you know muscle breaking down that you don't need to um so i do think you know i call it running at my happy pace so i'm just going along with what feels good and comfortable and you know my heart rate needs to be low enough because i need to eat so it's like a, a running picnic is what i would describe now. Yeah. that's so cool <laughs> i love that <laughs> well you know the downside most people who who end up not finishing races or you know, having low points, it's because they're not eating. Um, exactly. And if you don't put, you know, when I, what I tell myself, people ask me about a mantra. The only thing I tell myself is, if you don't eat, you can't run. You know, no, no energy in equals no energy out. It's really simple. So you have to run at that pace where you can keep eating. And I can eat and run. So I can eat a burger while I'm running. You know, I'll eat anything so, while I'm running. So you're saying your blood flows go into your stomach to help digestion instead of keeping your lungs going because you're you're running too fast yeah probably essentially i I think when people run too hard and your heart rate's really high if your heart rate's really high you you don't want to eat you can't eat um so it's interesting because i i see a lot of guys getting near to a support point and they're almost sprinting for that support point and that's really the wrong thing to do because you elevate your heart rate then. And then they flump in this chair and they don't eat. They just sit there, kind mm-hmm. of flump in it because they're just exhausted. And it takes them like five, ten minutes to like start doing anything useful like changing their shoes and socks or eating. Whereas I'll actually slow myself down a little bit going into that support point. And I've been overtaken by guys going into support point, but I'm out before they're out because I get there. And I'm stuffing food in my face, and then my shoes and change my shoes and socks, and I'm out, and then I'm good, and then I'm, the energy's in, um, and then I'll leave the support point, maybe just walking, to let that food digest, and then crack on. That's awesome. That's like just really great insight. And I mean, I have to admit, I I was thinking my kids, one of my kids' favorite movies, Jumanji, the whole time. My my weakness is cake. I think is one of the characters' uh, things, and and so when do you go into an aid station and look over the aid station and listen to your body and kind of pick and choose what you want, or do you know like a mile before you're even at the aid station what you're going to try to do, or walk me through that process of how you decide when you're looking over the spread, what, what to choose? So, so the food's not the only thing I'm thinking about. So with these long things, there's a lot to think about. So on the way in, I'm thinking, okay, am I changing my shoes and socks? Do I need more kit? Do I need a head torch? Do I need, what do I need the map? Do I need to charge the batteries in my watch or a GPS device? What do I need? So that when I go in, I'm like, 
right, there's these five things, and I reel them off in my head and make sure that they're done. Um, and all the while that these things are being done, I'm eating. And to be honest, I'll eat anything. I, I don't care. I mean, food is food. Just get it in. I mean, I'll eat the first thing that's given to me. Um, I'll eat it. I don't care. Um, as long as there's more calories in, it really doesn't matter. Um, of course, there are times when you feel not so good about eating because for whatever reason, um, and you go off certain foods. Um, so you just got to then find whatever you can eat and just get that down. So, I mean, on the Wainwrights, um, <laughs> I feel such a diva, but it's like at one point they were like, what will you eat? What do you want? I was like, well, actually some scones with butter and jam. <laughs> <laughs> and they got them for me and I ate them. And they're always really surprised because no one else seems to want sweet stuff when they're racing. But, oh, my God, give me cake. <laughs> give me cake and I, I will eat that cake. Um, but, but, yeah, different thing. You want variety. I mean, there is a guy I know who does, like, the spine, and he literally takes 70 bars of exactly the same thing, and he just eats a bar every hour. And you're like... But I couldn't do that because that really would be very boring. Um, so I, I much prefer eating proper food, you know, chips, burgers, um, rice, potatoes, cake. mint, cake. Yeah, cakes. cakes you know, it's like <laughs> yeah, lots of cakes. Um, bonds. I had crumpets. I had toast. Oh, you make me miss British food so much. <laughs> yeah, everything that goes down really well is smashed avocado. Oh, my God. Put that in a sandwich with cheese and tomato. And I lived off those on the Wainwrights. I, I never refused one of those. Those went down every time. They're good. I mean, I've joked before. I don't even really like running that much. It's more about oh. going out there and eating whatever the heck uh, <laughs> I want. No. Yeah. Um, and, and so do you – have you thrown up ever? Because it sounds like you have an iron stomach. And tell me more about how you stay hydrated throughout – six days of running and balancing electrolytes okay so i've only ever thrown up once and it was on my first bob graham attempt and somebody forgot the box the support team forgot the box with food in it <laughs> so i i'd gone halfway through i was doing really well on my time and then i got to the checkpoint and they not brought the food so I didn't have any food to eat. So then I started out on the next leg with no food. And I got about three more hours in. And then I felt really bad. And I was just like, I ha you know, I had no food in me. So we sacked it off. I mean, the weather was also abysmal, to be honest. We had gale force winds and we'd been thrown on the floor. So we were going to sack it off anyway. But I also had no food in me. So then it took us like two hours to get down the hill just to the next support point even going the quickest route because there'd been so much rain it all turned to rivers and it was really difficult anyway we got into this support point and I felt really rough and then I vomited and it was because I had nothing in my stomach so for me I would say if you're vomiting it's probably because you haven't eaten that's what I think oh you're trying to burn your body up you know, with no energy, you know, you're trying to make your body work with no energy in it. And that's, I think, when, when you vomit, that's what I would say, because that, that is the only time ever I've vomited. And it, as I say, it was after I finished and, um, I'd just not eaten for like 
six hours of running. It was silly. And, and just, I, I mean, how are you balancing electrolytes? Are you swigging on something like the whole time? Do you just have fresh water in a bottle and take salt caps of some sort? Or how are you doing that? What I've done, I think I've done every combination um, ever on this. And I, I, I don't really know that there's any right or wrong or optimal, to be honest. Um, but if it's really hot, um, then I put like double the electrolytes and drink that. And that seems to sort out the heat. Um, because you know, when, when, when you're sweating a lot, and I think that's probably the other thing I don't sweat a lot normally. So it has to be pretty hot. I'm talking about like 25 degrees plus. Um, if it's like that, then, then I'll, I'll drink, I'll put two of those kind of electrolyte tabs in about 500 mil or 750 mil of water and, and drink just that while it's that hot. Um, but if it's not really hot, then I don't think, you know, you need anything in particular. Um, I quite like racing with mountain fuel, um, which uh, you add a scoop to, you know, 500 mil of water, it's a powder. Um, and that has sugar in as well as electrolytes. And it's just quite good to give you some extra calories as well as the food that you're eating, um, you know, to wash it down with. Um, but you do need to be careful on really long things that you're not drinking loads of sweet stuff um, because it will ulcerate your mouth. Um, and, so, and other places. <laughs> oh, your guts, yeah. Um, probably not good. Um, so, so you have to be careful not to have too much sugar all the time. So I think, um, on longer things, you might want to alternate. I mean, I drunk a lot of tea as well. I mean, caffeine's quite good to, you know, wake you up at night. So that's always good to have a cup of tea and to warm your body up as well. Um, and then I might take, you know, some electrolytes, but mainly start drinking as much water as possible just to keep the mouth, um, fresh. Um, it was a problem on the Wainwrights for me um, because I was eating like all the time, like every half hour and hardly having any sleep. Of course, my mouth got no rest. So, mm, you know, and that was really sore. Um, so you, then that's another thing that doesn't, you know, you don't want to eat because your mouth hurts, which is terrible. Um, but I, I think, you know, people get mouth ulcers when they just don't sleep properly under normal conditions, don't they? So, it's not a surprise six days of not sleeping properly and eating sugar and all that and all the time that your mouth's going to ulcerate quite badly. So to kind of take it bigger picture, um, kind of a two part question. How did you discover that you enjoyed these really long adventures? Um, and then why do you enjoy them so much? Like what brings you back to wanting to do these four, five, six-day challenges. Okay. So I first found out about adventure racing. Uh, I was at Cambridge Uni, and it was funny, actually. A guy called Russ Ladkin, um, who wasn't anything to do with the university, he just sent an, an email to the running club to saying, does anyone want to find out what adventure racing is about? And he said, just meet us in a pub. And I went down to this pub because I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. It's quite funny. I was just meeting some random man <laughs> in the pub. Um, but luckily he wasn't uh, of danger and he did want to talk about adventure racing which is good um 
And he told me about it and said, yeah, it's like these multi-sport things. Um, you do generally running, mountain biking um, and kayaking, sometimes some rope work. Um, there are short races that are like five hours. And then there's like some really long races that are like five or six days. And I, I was like, I won't do that. I won't do the five, six days, just straight in. And he was like, well, you should do some shorter stuff first. And I was like, no, I want to do the long things. It sounds better. It sounds more cool. You you go on an adventure. That's an adventure. Going for five hours is not an adventure. I want to go, yeah, I want to do the five. And, and he was very adamant that I was very silly. And he, he was telling me about a race that he was entering in September. And I think it was only maybe three or four months away. Um, and he was saying he needed a girl for the team. There were three guys. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll be your girl. And he was like, well, no, you're completely inexperienced. And, you know, I was just like, I'm going to show this man. I'm going to show this man. I'm going to have my own team, and we're going to kick their butts. <laughs> <laughs> no second date for him. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I was just like, it's just like, no, you can't, you can't just say, no, I can't do it without knowing whether I can do it. <laughs> so that, that was my first adventure race. It was um, the Hebridean Challenge, and I think it was, it was something like five days, but it was staged. Um, although my team, we were quite terrible. So we finished at one in the morning and then had to start again at like eight in the morning again. Um, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Had you been um, running prior and like, were you into I track your marathon yeah, or anything? A bit of triathlon. Okay. Um, okay. My, my first sort of sport was modern pentathlon, which is oh, like, wow. yeah, we did like a three kilometer cross country and then 200 meter swim and then we rode a horse around the show jumping course and then you do a bit of fencing um and then uh what's the final thing oh you're shooting so so that was the first sort of sport I got into at university and then I got into triathlon um and I, I was actually really rubbish at the running I would be okay at the swimming um get on the bike about like in top 10 maybe and then i would just i'd probably finish t first on the bike um and then the whole world would overtake me on the run and it <laughs> it was like oh <laughs> that's a shame um so when i started adventure racing i was really strong on the bike uh and i'd never run like off road that was a new concept to me um so I eventually joined this team with Russ, the guy who had introduced me to adventure racing, because once I'd done the Hebridean Challenge, he decided that I was actually okay and useful and that I would be quite good at these long races. Um, so I learned a lot from them. I, I, I learned how to run, you know, on the fell and off-road and and uh, just got, yeah, I think I always had a natural ability for the long stuff. Um, but what I, what keep, kept me going back to do adventure races, I did it for 10 years, um, and also for my ultra running, is the exploration and adventure. It's the going to places that you're not going to get to by car um, and seeing things um, and, and just, yeah, exploring. So I, I've been to lots of different countries and seen all the best parts. Well, I think the best parts of the country is because the race organizers, you know, take you to, you know, their favorite places um, and yeah, you just get to go new places that you, you wouldn't discover on your own, uh, without someone putting, you know, putting a course out there. What's, um, what's your favorite? I, I was going to ask that too. <laughs> I don't want to say like section of trail cause that's an Americanized way of thinking, I guess here. Um, 
like favorite race that you've done or round or, or FKT or, I mean, it's, you took nearly top 20 at UTMB. There's some amazing segments there. I mean, if, if you could just go run anywhere in the whole world, where would you pick? Um, not the UTMB. When I did the UTMB, do you know what? I, I was so depressed. I didn't even see Mont Blanc once. I was just like, <laughs> I'm doing the tour of Mont Blanc, and I can't see the damn thing. We had flag. I think it snowed at one point. Oh, my God. And then there was this, like, mudslide. It was terrible. It was it was such oh. a bad a bad year for that so i guess one day i'd like to go back and see it um but the thing that puts me off about the utmb is the sheer volume of people um i i guess i'm quite used to being in smaller groups uh you know on my own in the hills and i i was a bit overwhelmed by how many people there were and um i i didn't enjoy that aspect of it when i'm in the mountains i like to be a little bit alone you don't like uh, being jabbed with poles? Yes, yes. It's <laughs> part of the experience. Yeah, and I don't use poles. I mean, I did for Wainwrights because it's a, it's a challenge, but I, I really don't think they should be used in races. Um, that's I'm, I feel quite strongly about that, so I don't really use them in races um, because I, I just think that the chance of poking someone's eye out is just too high, and, and I wouldn't forgive myself if I stabbed someone with my pole. Um, you know, and, and I really don't like it when people put them in the path and block you because, you know, they don't want you to pass with their poles. Um, but yeah, so I digress. So UTMB is not my favorite note. Um, the Wainwrights is probably my favorite thing ever. And I could just do that again and again and again. I know I'm mental. Um, (laughs) and I, I really do like the dragon's back. Um, I also really like the spine race. Um, I don't think the Pennine way is as exciting as dragon's back or, um, the Wainwrights, you know, you don't go up so many amazing summits, but I do love that race because of the people that organize it. And we call it the spine family. And it's just, it's so true. I mean, you just feel like, you know, you're completely at home and, you know, and just this warm bubbly feeling and you know, all the other competitors and you're all running along together and you're not, I mean, yeah, you certainly no rivalry. You're all just friends and all just wanting to get to the end. And it's, oh, I love it. Um, that That is really very special. Um, and it's also quite small still. So, yeah, it, it's nice. It's not big like UTMB. I honestly, I want to do pretty much every every race <laughs> that you've mentioned at some point. Do it. Do it. I mean, I keep, I once... keep telling Rob about Dragon's Back. I'm oh. like, we've got to get there. <laughs> Are you going to come back and do it again? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, oh, I can't, right. can't leave it where it was. Yeah. You can't get to day four and then <laughs> not come back. They might be adding a sixth day. <laughs> I saw that. I can't decide if I think that's great or <laughs> yeah, I'm what do you think? That. I'm with you on that because normally I would say longer the better, longer the better. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Um, but I guess I have to run it to know whether it's better or not. I can't. I can't comment if I haven't done it. Um, but the problem for me with with staged races like the Dragon's Back is I don't sleep at night. Uh-huh. So I I don't. You know, actually, it's worse. I think I'm better off continuing. Um, so so that's one thing about the stage races. I 
and, and for Cape Wrath, I was a bit worried because it's a bit longer. I would have like you know not sleeping. Um, I'm almost better in a way, yeah, just to run through. I think. Well, I hope I get to meet you in person at some point. And I wanted to thank Alyssa for setting this up. The fact that you guys knew each other, had run uh, the same race at some point. Like, I was really excited to get to speak with you. And, and you know, you haven't had many U.S.-based interviews. So I, I'd really like to open up um, a lot of us ultra runners to these amazing experiences so really appreciate you taking so much of your time today oh you're very welcome uh, you know actually it would be great to have more you know international people come over um to do these races you know you're missing out they're so good <laughs> oh i i am firmly in the camp of bringing the u.s and european runners i feel like i can help bridge that gap a little bit really? better so yeah. super excited to make that happen yeah that would be great and where can people follow you on social media well i've got a name that is unfortunately extremely original so it's <laughs> really you could just google but i'm i'm only really on facebook and to be honest i don't really um post much i i think more other people post stuff for me um <laughs> <laughs> i i agree with that i've seen more from other people than from you yeah, I'm quite quiet on that front. Um, you know, I'm I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not an athlete by profession. I, I'm a vet, so I do my job. My running is my hobby. Um, so I don't really have time to spend loads of time on social media. I think is the thing. No, it's it's totally fine. I mean, I, I respect the heck out of everything you're doing, and hopefully, we can collaborate in the future or, or just catch up with you see how you're doing so thank you again for for taking so much of your time today and and just look forward to following along your next adventure perfect all right nice thank to see you yeah take care Alyssa. you too bye-bye okay bye and that was episode 139 i hope you guys enjoyed it big thank you to sabrina for sharing that sort of exclusive. I don't think she's been on a podcast to discuss that just epic experience. So big thank you to her. Big big thank you to Alyssa for co-hosting. Hope you guys are enjoying having her on. I think she adds another uh, nice element to the interview. And check out training, the number four, adventure.com for additional adventure content. Big thank you to the show sponsors, Hammer Nutrition, Exoskin, Destination Trail, Kogala, and then big big thank you to the Patreon supporters, Brian Sands, Richard Murray, just giant supporters, but I really, really appreciate every single one of you. David, Brian, Meg, Landon, Pat, Joseph, Ray, Todd, Matthew. You guys are just huge supporters. Thank you for being part of that shout-out tier. Have a great week of training. Get out there. Don't forget to enjoy it. See you guys 